Welcome to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. I'm your host, Tim Reed. And once again, I'm so excited to be here today. Welcome to Season 5 of the Firetime Podcast. Guys, it's crazy that we've made it this far. I get very nostalgic around Labor Day now ever since the podcast started because, I mean, it was basically two years ago to the day that we launched the first episode of the podcast. And I'm just going to tell you guys, my life has changed in that time, and I hope that yours has too. It's unbelievable to think that we are 69 episodes in over the course of two years. I, I think it's just unbelievable the fact that we've been able to build a community that's centered around growing our businesses and growing our industry. I mean, I think about over the last two years, I've traveled all around the country to help businesses, to speak to companies, and to be able to offer insights that all comes from the audience that this podcast has created. I'm immensely thankful, and, and I don't take it lightly. You know, my hope for you is you've been listening to this over the last couple of years is that but you've been able to grow personally as well, whether that's as a husband or a wife or a friend, whatever it looks like. As I went into this season and thought about what is it that we want to do, I took a big step back. I feel like last season, what was really cool was thinking about big picture business. I mean, you know, the last eight episodes of season four was me and Grant Falco going through each of the eight departments and running a hearth company. And I'm really proud of the content that was there. I think, though, that it was very big picture. I had a friend tell me that he felt like last season, I mean, he couldn't just listen to it in the car. He had to have like a notepad and a pen really ready to, to think about it and process it. And as I thought about what do we want to accomplish this season, my hope is that we are really going back to the basics and that this is about an investment in yourself. As I scheduled the guests for this season, what you're going to find over and over and over is that the content is really geared towards who are you going to be. We're going to cover sales, finances, we're going to talk about leadership, economics, we're going to talk about all kinds of things this season, but at the end of it, I hope that you walk away with it asking the question, who do I want to become and what steps am I taking to get there? Now, the first episode of this season is one that I am super excited about, and it is with return guest to the show, Bill Lentz. Now, Bill came on last season for an episode titled The Legacy of Tom Pugh, because Bill worked with, I mean, the legend Tom Pugh for years and years and years. But I'm telling you, this guy is like the Phil Jackson of fireplace sales. When you listen to him, you're going to understand why, but this man profoundly understands what sales is about. And, and I'm super excited for this conversation. When I first got into sales, I'd been an installer for probably four to five years and I got a job up in Portland working for a dealership up there. It was the fall of 2008, right? Great time to take on a new job in the hearth industry. And I remember right then Bill Lentz was putting out a series of articles for Hearth and Home magazine called The Art of Sales. I read these articles back then, and that started a journey for me that profoundly influenced the way that I have become a salesperson. I've taken his courses over the years, and sitting down with him today, we dive deep into 
what it is that makes him tick. Now, we're going to reference this series of articles, The Art of Sales, multiple times in the interview. And to help you guys out, I actually have a link to them posted in the show notes. So you can go to the show notes and download this article series. And I'm telling you, you should make this a part of the training regimen of any new salesperson in the industry. And you yourself should probably go back once a year and review it. Now, this is a long conversation, but I'm telling you, you're going to get swept away listening to Bill. I mean, when you can get someone who's seasoned, who's got wisdom, who's full of real life application and stories, this is something that you don't want to cut short. So I cannot wait to share this conversation with you. And as always, we'll circle back at the end and talk about it. Joining me from Brookings, Oregon is return guest to the show, Bill Lentz. Now, Bill was on our podcast last season when we talked about the legacy of Tom Pugh, and we're pulling him back out of retirement again so that we can have a discussion around the art of sales. And and actually, I think one of the reasons that, that Bill is here is, is because he's actually stuck in Brookings. Normally, he'd be at his home in, in Santa Fe, New Mexico playing golf, but since he's holed up in Brookings due to the pandemic, we're able to get him for a second episode. So, Bill, thanks for being here today. My pleasure. Great to be here again, and... Uh... I wanted to mention on that podcast with uh, that we we did about uh, my good friend Tom Pugh is that uh, we had a chance to share that podcast with his wife Wendy, and she was just thrilled to hear it. Thought it was a, a wonderful tribute to uh, her late husband, and so on behalf of Wendy and, and I'm sure the rest of his family, thank you for for doing that. Wow, yeah, that that means a lot. I appreciate you sending that to her. Now. When we talked last time, the spotlight was on Tom, and rightfully so, but today, I I really want to focus to your body of work. So I was hired in September of 2008, right as the economy was crashing, and during that first year of my sales experience, I came into contact with a series of articles that you wrote for Hearth and Home Magazine called The Art of Sales. And over the last 12 years, I've actually been to either three or four of your Art of Sales courses, and they've been just terrific. And, and I feel like today I want to dive deep into that. And now I have a digital copy of The Art of Sales. With your permission, I might see if I can get that posted online so that our audience can, can get it because the content's really valuable. But I think it's going to frame just a terrific conversation for what everyone needs to be thinking about. So the first thing I want to ask you about when it comes to The Art of Sales is this, Bill. So we think in the fireplace industry that, that we sell fireplaces. And, and, and most often, I mean, I, I can't tell you how many times I was trained on this in the past. Like, you got to know your brochures, right? Like, know how many BTUs it is. Is it 48,000 BTUs? How long is the burn time exactly? How far is the clearance from combustible? How thick is our steel? These were the things that I was taught make for a good salesperson. And the deeper that I get into this journey, the, the more I realize that that's actually not the case. And, and it's not that salespeople don't have to have product knowledge, but people aren't buying because of how many BTUs are in the fireplace and because it's you know ceramic glass versus tempered glass. Can, can you talk about the reasons that people actually buy our products? You bet. I, I can also talk about why salespeople really relish knowledge about the products and how they almost... Uh, treat the knowledge as a as some sort of a pass to be able to sell better. Uh, j- just to make that point, first of all, one of the key ingredients in being a successful salesperson is a sense of self-confidence and the ability to put a customer at ease through your own feeling of confidence and competence. And uh, one of the ways available to you to help along the way is 
just uh, filling yourself with product knowledge. You got to remember, though, as a salesperson, that's for you. That's not for the customer. That made you feel confident and comfortable. That does not help the customer feel confident and comfortable. They are not going to turn around and become salespeople in retail stores, right? They're going to take it home and they're going to enjoy the product. So we don't need to train them up in becoming salespeople. What we do need to do is appeal to their sensory perception. The only way we have of sensing the outside world, getting information, is through our five senses. And I won't list them as I tend to forget them, but most people know that the, the primary uh, sensory perception is sight, although uh, sound comes in there. And to a certain extent, even in our business, we can get into smell in, in retail uh, settings and some taste sometimes. Uh, you might have little food to taste on a barbecue and that sort of thing. And then there's touch. And uh, people use touch all the time in selling hearth products to transmit information to their customers where they feel the heat, uh, they can feel how smooth the surface is or how rough the surface is, et cetera, et cetera. So we, we are really trying to translate our services and our products into sensory experiences for customers. And what sensory experience are they trying to achieve? Well, I look at it two different ways. One, simply pleasure, pleasurable sensation, or they're trying to avoid unpleasurable situations. An unpleasurable situation in the hearth industry might be a family member at home who's complaining about how it's always cold and you never let me turn the thermostat up, and why can't we get a wood stove? And so just to get this person off my back, I'm in your store to take care. So that person's trying to avoid pain. Another person might be buying a fireplace some, uh, or a, a stove in order to uh, beautify a living space so that the family will feel proud of him, that he'll feel proud, he or she will feel proud of themselves, and that any guest that comes in and experiences it will see that they haven't reached a certain level uh, in life that shows that they have taste and that sort of thing. So that experience that they're trying to gain is what you are actually selling, not the product which they are using to deliver that experience. That's so good. You know, it's funny. There's so many things I want to ask you about. I'm just going to pick one. I think that we overcomplicate it. In in your example of we're, we're not trying to make the customer a fireplace salesperson, so we don't need to tell them every single thing that we know. What we need to do is, is choose out of the whole database of things that are in our head, we need to pick what is relevant to them solving their problem, to them achieving the gain that they want, avoiding the pain that they want. And those are the only things that the customer needs to know. They don't need to know anything else besides that. And, and I think that, frankly, too often we are derailing the customer by filling their head with things that don't matter and and don't ultimately end up helping them achieve success. It might actually make them leave because they they get sort of overwhelmed with the amount of information. Uh, Do you know how you go about finding out what actually motivated them to come into the store? Okay. I'm going to, I'm going to steal this from you. Yes. You ask them. And that's amazing how, how difficult the concept that could be <laughs> because, you know, as a salesperson, you want to launch into your, your presentation. 
but it really does require uh, a little bit of patience and uh, uh, clarification, really just sitting down and asking some basic questions of, of a customer. I mean, you might even find out that all they're doing is killing some time while, while their wife is shopping at the store next door. I mean, wouldn't that save you a lot of time and effort if you found that out? So we do have to find out up front what kind of experience the customer thinks at least that they're in there trying to find. Yeah, you know, a while back, we did a series of seven episodes on a seven-step retail sales process. And there's a lot of overlap with what you taught. In in your sales process, you called it information. We, we called it understanding. But the point was that before you can talk to a customer about the solutions that you offer, you must understand the problem that they have. And if a guy is is walking into your store because his wife is you know, getting the car fixed down the street or, or getting her nails done, you know, at the business next door. His problem is I need to fill 20 minutes of my time. So I'm in here. That's much different than a customer whose house is cold and their fireplace is broken coming in where their problem is I need it to be fixed. And I've seen this happen time and time again, where team members either are afraid to ask the customer, why are you in here? Or they frankly just don't care. And so they waste a bunch of their time. Yeah, we used to call that shotgunning when I was in retail, you know, where you just you just start showing them everything in the store. And then after you've shown them everything, you ask them, well, is there anything you like? And they say, oh, no, it's about time I went and met my wife now. We're, going, we're having dinner. You know, and you go, oh, so uh, don't shotgun. That's my that's my advice. Don't shotgun. You talked about this, I think, last time you were on the podcast. You mentioned that when you're talking to a customer, only give them three options or only give them three features for every product. Can you elaborate on that? Well, I think I think we were talking about uh, retail sales people and the ones that worked for me when I was managing a retail store. Uh, I got into listening to these long explanations of all the different qualities of a wood stove or whatever they were selling. And, you know, for most people, that's just, like I say, overwhelming. It suddenly becomes really complicated in order to go through with this, this this purchase. So I better take more time. I didn't realize it had so much going on and I better check all this stuff out. The The salesperson unwittingly has made the, the customer wary now of this purchase and actually increased their level of uh, discomfort or fear when it comes to becoming an owner. So I just set up as a little rule, the maximum you can give any customer is three features and benefits of any particular thing you're selling. That's it the most before you close. You can learn a fourth. So I allow a fourth, but that only comes in at the end after the customer maybe has had several trial closes and, and is still trying to make up their mind. And you have one last thing that you throw out that would help cinch the deal for you. But anyway, don't get uh, dragged down, I should say, in, uh, in uh, all the physical qualities of a uh, fireplace. You know, I like to make the analogy with, uh, when you're buying a, a hearth product to just remembering that when you, when you observe, I, I, I want to be politically correct, but there's still beauty contests, aren't there? I think of contests like Miss America, and it's not just a beauty contest, there's talent, there's other things. And I, I just like to make the point that do you really think at the end of the Miss America pageant, after they've crowned Miss America, that they actually found the best woman in America, that that's Miss America, that she didn't have any negative characteristic, didn't have any qualities that were 
not optimal or anything like that? Of course not. Uh, none of us would ever have a relationship or get married if all of our qualities had to be positive. So all that's happening in a, in a competition like Miss America is they're putting forth some of the, the uh, features that would be most impressive to the select judges that are sitting there. They're not going through everything or their whole history and stuff. So you as a salesperson, you know, you have to sit there and think, what is the most direct route to my customer's desire? How do I fulfill his desire through this product? Not just shooting everything at them, but what qualities and what aspects of this and buying in my store, for instance, versus the just talking about the product, I might be selling my store or I might be selling my installation crew. All the different things that are possible to sell are available to you as a salesman that will put this customer at ease and make the, make the journey into ownership that much easier for them. You know, if you're working in a retail store in a hearth industry and a customer somehow turns off the TV set on a Saturday afternoon and turns to his or her spouse and says, honey, I don't know about you, but I'm feeling like going down and talking to a salesman. They go, and let's just say they're lucky enough to hear the spouse say, well, it sounds weird, but okay. And they get in the, <laughs> and then they have to decide, is the dog coming or is the dog staying home? And then they finally make that decision. And they, they go out and they realize I've got to get gas. I'm really low on fun. It's turned into something more complicated. Then they get down to your store. And they're not exactly sure where you're located. A lot of hard stores are hard to find. So they're traveling around and they get a little frustrated. They finally have enough patience. They get, they, they find a place to park. They come into your store. Do you think they're motivated? <laughs> <laughs> Do you think they really would like to see something that would satisfy their desire? I guess so. But, you know, you or I have just been sitting in the store waiting for a customer and somebody pops their head in. And we don't realize the whole backstory that brought them in there. So we maybe lack some of the empathy that's required, some of the gratitude for the customer even being there, and some of the excitement of having the opportunity to sell something, to make a profit, and to take care of somebody's needs. Anyway, so that whole attitude gets kind of flushed if you don't take a kind of an overall view of a customer's experience coming into your store. Anyway, so that's that's it. I am so glad you went there. And and I swear that you've been listening to this podcast because what you just said is like you could you could take over my hosting job. Because we don't understand the value of our customers. I mean, I just think about where I am right now in life. Like me and my wife have two little kids, our lives are busy, we're getting emails, we're getting phone calls. You know, for us to stop what we're doing on a Saturday, load the kids into the car drive to go find a hearth business, which is a product that we never, ever buy. I mean, like once every 10 years, 20 years you buy and hang out for 45 minutes in the showroom. Like we're pretty serious. And, and I mean, I could go off the rails here talking about lack of follow-up. Like when a customer has shown you the, the, the grace of, of taking all these steps to come and ask for your services and you don't write them up an estimate you you don't call them back and you just send them back out the door with a brochure, a business card and a head full of information that doesn't help them. Like, oh my gosh, like it's terrible, but this is what happens all the time. We don't value 
the journey that a customer has taken to actually get to us. And they really do want to buy, no matter what they tell you, they really do. And you can, you know, and you can, uh, you could count on uh, one hand the number of times I've ever made the statement, I would like now to go talk to a salesman. I just don't do that. I mean, you know, it's a, it's it's not a what I don't think most people would consider that a pleasurable experience. Let's go down to the the auto store and let's see what's new and talk to some salespeople. <laughs> you know, I I made the mistake the other day because I was looking at getting a new car. I went online and was looking at something, and I started getting phone calls from a local dealer, like two and three times a day. You know, and I. Definitely, by by about the fourth day in a row of calling, of being called, you know, I not only asked him to stop calling, but uh, I I told him I I would the last thing in the world I would ever do would be buy a car from. Sorry, you know. Anyway, it's not a fun thing for most people. Hopefully, you and I, as as salespeople, can inspire other salespeople to make it fun and make it light yeah. and make it interesting, and then also make it effective. You know, so that they they're there, and well, I use the other another analogy. Maybe you remember in one of the articles, if you want to lose weight, you know, you go and you're seeing your doctor for the physical, and the doctor says you need to lose fifty pounds or thirty pounds or ten pounds. You know, that's sort of uh, you knew that it's not like brand new to you. What are you hoping for? The doctor just avoids that information and doesn't tell you, because. You know, you're going to have to complain that, my goodness, my job takes me on the road and I have to eat out. It's awfully hard to diet, you know, and I don't have time for exercise and my busy day and all that. Did you really want the doctor to just give up so you could go find another doctor and look? No. And the same thing happens with salespeople. You don't want to go to it. I mean, the salesperson is a doctor to me. You go to the salesperson and you expect to be remedied in some way for what it is you need. And if the person just doesn't know their job, doesn't understand the function they're performing, and they don't address the need, it's a very frustrating experience for the consumer. They have to go or maybe find somebody else at your store, or go to drive to a whole nother store somewhere else. It's it's uh, when you start seeing it in uh, in these terms, you really really want to embrace that customer and what the, what brought them into the store. Honestly, when a customer walks in. One of the biggest mistakes I see is I, I do a lot of secret shopping is people take them straight to products. A customer comes in and says, hey, I'm, I'm in here looking for an insert. And the salesperson goes, oh, perfect. We got inserts right over here. And they just jump right in. And I think that a couple things happen. So, so number one, when we jump too quickly to showing products and when we get too technical too quickly, we turn it into a commodity purchase where there's no customization. You want an insert? We sell inserts. This is an insert. This is your square foot. Do you want it? You have just made what you sell a commodity. When you make it all about BTUs, oh, we were looking at a 35,000 BTU fireplace. Well, ours is 37,000 BTUs. You get those extra 2,000 BTUs for the same price, so ours is better. You've just commoditized your product. And I think manufacturers are guilty of this in some ways because the way that they print their brochures makes BTUs like the most important thing, which is not the case. But when we do that, we, we commoditize ourselves. And what we have to do is... Before we show the customer anything, we have to sit down and say, hey, Bill, I appreciate you coming in. Thank you. I know how difficult that is to, to make a stop in, in today's world. Can I learn a little bit about your space so that way I can show you which options could be a good fit for you? 
and then listen and take notes. You know, the, the sad truth is that all of these hearth products are uh, tested and rated and they, they uh, appear to have statistics that would describe their effectiveness as hearth products. And yet, you know, if you've been around long enough in this industry and worked with enough different manufacturers and seen enough factories and the test facilities that they have in factories and talked to them and the engineers that are working there, you realize that a lot of that sort of what looks like hard data is pretty soft. And some of it's just fictional. So, I mean, it, if this was a rational decision that people were making where they were comparing to get the best product for the cheapest price, like a commodity item, the most convenient thing at the least amount of money, well, then those brochures would be right on the money. But I think the brochures are primarily there, uh, in many cases, to, to uh, satisfy the dealer and the dealer's salesperson, who they assume doesn't have enough information about the product, and they're going to supply it. I don't think they're, they're I've seen customer oriented brochures, but they are sort of few and far between. They're, they're, people are got, getting smarter. I think companies are spending a lot more time personalizing the product offerings and really showing them things in the brochure that aren't technically oriented. You know, they're showing families and dogs and uh, parties and all those different experiences people are looking for rather than uh, uh, just touting some test result. That's uh, the product is passed. Yeah. Yeah. I'm with you. Let me, let me just say this about how I first learned about the difference between uh, product knowledge and sales in the heart industry in particular. I came from a sales background and I went to work in a retail store in Albuquerque, New Mexico for a friend of mine that I had known for 15 years before that who was managing the store and needed some help. And so I just went in one, uh, one day and it was in the middle of July. And this has become a part of my sales seminar. I just, to the to the awe of the manager and one of the salesmen that was working in the store, I sold three wood stoves my first day, and uh, they didn't sell any by the way. So no, I, so those were the only three sold that day, and I had never owned a wood stove, didn't know anything about <laughs> except I knew they were metal and I knew you put wood in them and they heated, and uh, I, and I'd see, you know, I could look at them and see that they're attractive and things like that, but. Uh, they, they knew I had no product knowledge. I couldn't size chimneys, or any of that. But closed the deal, and the, uh, t one customer bought two stoves and one customer bought one. And all done with just an understanding of the sales process, establishing trust and rapport, a little bit of chit-chat to make everybody comfortable, and generally speaking about the, you know being comfortable with the warmth of the stove and things like that. I didn't know how much they heated, but if I made a mistake, I could correct it. The owner was right there. I could go to the manager. Yeah. So, uh, uh, and I knew I knew how to close the sale. I knew how to ask people if they would like to go ahead and get it. So that was that was my experience, my first day in the art industry, and I remember I went, I, re, I went away thinking. This, compared to the kind of sales I was doing before that, is the easiest thing in the world. I can't believe this. The people come in here and want this, and all you got to do is make it palatable. So uh, not to brag, but just simply to say it isn't really about the product itself. You know, yes, they're in there, and they're going to get a certain experience. But your job as a salesperson is to really understand what how a customer perceives objects and what they're looking for 
and then what your role in as a facilitate your what your role is rather as a facilitator of that sale or as i like to call it the transfer of ownership of a product or service you're transferring it from the dealer or the owner of the store to the consumer and that's what sales always is in all of its many forms whether you're selling ideas products or services it doesn't matter it's transferring ownership from one being to another and you're just doing that over and over again as a professional salesperson. It gets really hard. I mean, you're doing this normally as a regular, just everyday human being. You're doing it throughout your day with all the people you talk to and share with. You're always making some sort of transaction. But when you take on the role of a professional salesperson, things get serious and then you get scared and you're doing something that's uncomfortable and it just takes a while and it takes an understanding of what the process is and what your part in it is to make that settle down enough so that you can become as effective as you really can be. Bill, I want to ask you, what do you say when you're teaching sales and someone steps up and says, well, I don't want my team members to be pushy? I don't want to be pushy either. And uh, often, you know, that's what people tell you all the time. To me, a pushy salesperson is generally uh, an unskillful salesperson. So that they're sort of forcing something that isn't, doesn't feel comfortable. And it's, you, you know, it's like children are pushy salespeople. You know, they want something. They want you to take them or something. And they won't shut up. I mean, they just go on and you say no. And they, then they eventually start whining and crying about it until you finally do it just to make them shut up. And, and that is the sales technique that all of us learned initially, oh, the child's sales technique. This is my life right now. You know, in my one of the seminars I started talking about, because I have to entertain myself, you know. So it was just a funny concept I had that uh, we all start out in the uh, ultimate spa, you know, as embryos. Every need taken care of, it's warm, you know. Uh, we don't even have to open our mouths to eat, you know. It's, it's just delightful. And then suddenly, without any language skills, any knowledge of what the heck is going on, we are expelled into the world where we have to kind of get our needs met. And so the only technique you have is to just whine and scream and cry at the top of your lungs until somebody finally guesses what it is you, you wanted, you know. To, and it's always something to feel pleasure or to stop feeling pain, same as it is when you're 70 years old. But it starts out at that age, and you put on this show until people finally give you what you want. And then that gets refined a little bit. But until you really get into the whole profession of selling, I think you don't give up some of those childhood patterns. So anyway, long way around to say that... Uh, I've worked for lots of people not who are owned owned stores who were not did not come from a sales background. They might have come from well, science background from or, or uh, engineering, wh whatever, any one of a number of things, but didn't have much in the way of sales experience, certainly no retail sales experience. And I put on little seminars for dealers, maybe at a meeting or something like that. And it would, it would be always funny because about three days after the dealer meeting was over, the owner of the store who was sitting in on the meetings would come in and go, you know, that whole thing about asking for the sale, 
Bill, that really works. My God, you know, how about that? Yeah, you know, I don't know. I mean, we were just talking and I asked him if he wanted to go ahead or if he felt comfortable going ahead and getting this. Or I, you know, there's people, dealers can uh, ask probably you and they ask me, what's, what's a nice way of asking for the sale as opposed to what? Buy it? <laughs> Buy it or else? You know, yeah. Well, there's a, there's a lot of nice ways uh, to ask for the sale. And this brings up my my uh, other story that uh, was interesting about closing. And that happened, and it, that's in one of those articles too, because uh, these things stayed with me for a long time. I was working for the Dale Carnegie courses and we were selling a management course for people. And I, uh, this is before I got in the hearth industry, but it's how I got into the hearth industry, I guess. I, I, I called on the owner of uh, a store in Santa Fe, New Mexico, uh, who's no longer in the business, and uh, to talk to him about this management course. And I was really kind of a new salesman at that point, and I had a canned 10-minute presentation, a little flip chart I went through and explained the course to him. And, and I was really just kind of feeling my way. And I got up there like 2.30, 2 o'clock in the afternoon, and I had an appointment with him and it went on and on. He talked, people on the phone, he went out in the main showroom. He did everything but pay any attention to me. His wife was sitting there. She was the bookkeeper in the industry, in the business. And uh, they would have a conversation. Then the phone would ring. And then time is gone, gone, gone. It's now about four o'clock and I haven't done anything. I haven't, you know, I'm just sitting there like an idiot. And I, ha I have to be back in Albuquerque to my young family at the time by five. And that's about, you know, so I have about an hour. It's about a 50-minute drive. So I said, Gene was his name. Gene, I'm really sorry we haven't had a chance for me to tell you anything about the Carnegie course, but I have to be home. Do you want to take this class or not? And you know, that's not my level of skill. And the um, the energy change in the room was palpable. I mean, you could feel it suddenly. All this frenzied activity just stopped. Silence. And he looked over at his wife, and I remember just some kind of thing transmitted between them. And uh, he came. He nodded at me, and she wrote the check for eight hundred bucks or something. I took it. Went. He took the course. And I and I got from that. You can do absolutely nothing if you just close you know, and to make the sale. But I don't think you can make many sales without ever, ever closing. You can, you can get people to beg you to, to sell it to them or just give you a check and ask you to please be quiet. But it's, you know, it's few and far between. So just learn to ask people in a nice, friendly way if they're ready to go ahead or if they had any more questions before you went ahead and wrote the paperwork up or what, however you want to say it. And I remember when I first learned the language of sales, too, that it was foreign to me as well. And I remember a real professional that I learned from by tailing after him all the time, shadowing him, as it were. And it seemed like his, his language was so quick and easy for him. I had never get that, I thought to myself. But, you know, over a period of time, you just get comfortable with asking people for a sale in a way that's not offensive. It's not like I'm throwing a big decision at you. It's just the most natural thing in the world to do. You're here to get something at you. Well, I like to, I like to tell salespeople that so far in my 50 years or something in sales, 
I have never seen one salesperson actually shot by a customer because they closed on a, on a sale. It's just, they've never pulled a gun and just shot them. I, I asked you not to be pushy. The other thing to know, and Tom is really aware of Tom Pew, there are some very pushy salespeople who are very wealthy salespeople. I'm not saying being pushy and, and hard closing, as it, as it were, isn't effective. I'm just saying you don't have to do that. But if you do it, that doesn't mean you're, you're bad or wrong or unsuccessful. But we're not teaching that particular way of selling. We'll get back to our conversation with Bill Lentz in just one minute. Hey, if you listened to the last episode of Season 4, you heard that we had closed off registrations for Wi-Fi, but that they would be opening again soon. Well, I've got good news for you. Next month, we are opening up registration again for a new round of dealers to get set up with Wi-Fi. So as you've listened to this podcast, you've heard about it. If you want a system that generates estimates for you on your website, follows up with customers via email, has a CRM system to manage all of your opportunities. Wi-Fi is something that you got to take a look at. What we're rolling out this fall is actually the ability to use Wi-Fi in your showroom. And this is something that's just incredible. You're going to be able to create customized estimates instantaneously for customers over and over and over again automatically log those leads into a database where you can tie email marketing into it. You can follow up on everything and even create weekly game plans to make sure that you and your team are always on point. Now, registrations aren't open yet, but they are going to open next month. So if you want to get on the list and be one of the next dealers to get signed up for Wi-Fi, you can go to wifire.com. That's W-H-Y-F-I-R-E.com. Click on the button that says sign up and you can register your information. And when things open back up, you'll be able to take advantage of all these awesome features. So if you want to take control of your showroom sales process and your website, go to wifire.com and sign up for the waiting list today. One thing that you hit on that I think is really important is that sales is, it has to be an intentional act and a sales process. It truly needs to be a funnel that, that, that moves from point to point to point and becomes finer and finer and finer as you get to the end of it, to the point where a purchase is made. Sales should not be like a scavenger hunt without a map. And I think that there's a lot of companies that say, oh, we don't want to be pushy, thinking that, oh, it's because we're doing our customers a favor. But they're, in their efforts to not be pushy, they're confusing because a customer comes in with a problem, needing a solution, and the salesperson talks around and around and around about it and says, well, you could get an estimate from us, but I, but I, you know, you can shop around anywhere and get an estimate. You, you don't have to just get one from us. And so, you know, here's a brochure and a business card. And, you know, if you just go look at a couple places and let me know when you're ready, this is what we do, thinking that we're doing the customer a favor. And it is a disservice to the customer and to our industry. A sale is meant to go somewhere. And the beauty about where we live is that people have freedom to say, I don't want it. And when they don't want it, we respect their wishes. You know, I, I like to say, too, that uh, if you've asked the, uh, the customer, they would like to go ahead and or you maybe maybe you closed on a minor characteristic. So it's not like a big deal. You just uh, for, say, a wood stove. Did you did you prefer the model with the legs or the pedestal or something like that? And they say, I like the, uh, you know, either answer 
then was followed by the by the close, which is just, should we go ahead and take care of the paperwork? Should we go ahead and write that up? Uh, you want to go ahead and figure out when would be a convenient time for us to deliver it or, or set up an installation date. All those are closes. You know, if you or I went to visit a retail store and they had us work with their salespeople, you can talk to uh, two or three, you know, you're talking to the salesperson, you can ask them, what is the toughest objection you have to deal with? Which is the one that causes you the, the most sort of confusion and you lose the sale? And then we could deal with that particular one. Is there any reason why we shouldn't go ahead and figure out how to deal with it now, as opposed to just letting that continually be, befuddle you? The, the truth is, if it's caught, if it's coming up regularly enough that it's a pain, a thorn in your side, then chances are it's something you kind of agree with. You kind of think it's a good excuse not to go ahead and buy. And I've, I've given this seminar in a retail store, and, and I'm sitting there saying, like, for instance, how many of you believe that before any spouse, husband or wife, can go ahead and make a purchase decision, they need to consult with the other spouse? You know, you'll get everybody raising their hand. <laughs> now, how many of you are married? Well, maybe half of them or maybe all of them. They say, have you ever gone into a store and bought something without letting your spouse be in on it, knowing that if they didn't like it, you'd just take it back or you'll, you know, sure. Well, then why do you think it's so critical that uh, this person not make a decision by themselves? Just because you think, oh my gosh, if that's my husband or that's my wife, I don't want them deciding without, you know, whatever you're thinking. A lot of people in the world make decisions and the spouses couldn't be happier that they've taken that burden off of Oh, man. Yes. So uh, don't be afraid that the customer needs to follow some sort of preordained series of steps before they're allowed to make a purchase. You know, it's just not true. It could be true. You know, it could be that that's what they're they're going to do. Here's the way you know if they if they're seriously not going to make a purchase decision. They leave the store. You know, they actually—they don't <laughs> sit around and look at you and wait for you to say something. If they're done, they go. So uh, the whole idea that you give up first before the customer gives up is crazy. If they're still there and listening to you, even though they might have said, you know, I always like to run this by my husband or my wife before I make the decision. Instead of you going, okay, fine, here's the brochure. I want you to take it home. If, if they're going to do that, they go. If they're not going to do that, they're looking for something else from you. Just because the word said that they're going to check it in, check with their spouse doesn't mean that's absolutely the case. So you might think, well, what else could I, what would I say in a situation like this? Well, yeah, I mean, and it's only it's just our natural defense mechanism, fight or flight, to start putting up barriers when we're in an uncomfortable or different situation. Doesn't mean it's bad. It's just it's human nature. It's what we do. You know. And if they're still in the store, they're they're telling you there's a. I mean, there's a reason they're still in the store. Yes, and your job as a salesperson is to not fan the flames of that fear and not reflect it back to them by getting afraid yourself. So. That's a hard thing to learn, and that does take some experience, you know. So I wouldn't say you'd get that overnight, but you certainly can. If I can, and I was, you know, I, I very uh, 
uh, just me, me personally, I don't, I don't like, I didn't, and I, I still don't, but then I didn't like any form of failure or any kind of challenge or uh, any chance that a person would be upset in any way. One of my friends, Bradley Hartman, he's a sales consultant. He goes and talks to businesses all over the country, and he said that very often when he goes in, he'll say, so what's, what's the biggest objection you get that you, you don't know what to do with, that I, that I can help you with? And he said you'd be amazed at these companies that are doing hundreds of millions of dollars a year in sales, very successful sales reps. And they say, well, it's when customers say your price is too high. And Bradley's like, really? That's the, that's the biggest objection? What, what, what do you say in response to it? And they go, uh, well, it just kind of depends. And Bradley's like, no, no, no. If the customer ever says your price is too high, the next words out of your mouth are compared to what? And let them answer the question. And that's how you deal with that objection. And the way I learned to deal with it's exactly the same way, only a little different words. Uh, they say it's, uh, it, it's too, too high or too much. Your response is to look at them and say, too much? And then they get to tell you. <laughs> and, 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 when and the other thing about being too much is that you can break it down. Uh, if you want to, you can, you can say too much. Uh, when you say that, are you saying that you don't feel like the thing we've just been talking about, the product you're interested in, is not worth the price that you'd be paying for it? Or are you saying that that's just more money than you had in your budget for this particular item? I broke it into two different things. The item didn't have value or you don't, you have a budgetary restriction, right? If the thing doesn't have value yet, I haven't quite done my job of building the value of the product. If they have, if they have a budget consideration, I just tell them they can get the same product that they're, that they like with fewer uh, options and they can add them later. Or I we could look at a less expensive alternative. Okay. And a lot of times they, it's, I mean, you, you and I both know everything is too expensive, right? If I offered a, if I said, uh, you know, here's a pencil for a nickel, you probably tell me you can get them for two cents somewhere. Yeah. I mean, they're all too, everything's too, uh, that's just a code that we all have for, um, I'm not ready to buy this yet. Or, or I don't want to get taken advantage of. I don't want to be taken advantage of. And I want to be sure that that's really the price. It's not some lesser price. So when a customer says, is that the best you can do? The answer isn't, well, let me go back and sharpen my pencil and knock another 10. Yeah, I know. You know, the answer is, that's uh, really a, a great price on that product. If, if we do need to discount, as we talk about in the articles, recommend an old retailing established uh, experience where you have a, a clearance corral that's located away from the main showroom. It's in the back of the uh, warehouse or somewhere where they have to walk away from the other products that's, that are for sale on the showroom. And then they can get a scratch and dent modeler last year or four years ago's model that you still have in inventory or something where you've discounted it maybe 5% or, I mean, not, not a whole bunch, but that's the discount stuff. And you keep filling that with about three items you, after one sells. But usually people go back, see it, and go back and get what they want when they see this, you know. But that goes on in Sears. I mean, you know, yeah. boy, they're, they're running out of these uh, stores to use as examples. But any kind of clothing store you go in, there's a clearance rack someplace in the back. You know, and the, the choices are limited and the styles are horrendous. And, you know, 
anyway, so it just gives, it, rather than telling people, no, we don't ever discount, go, yeah, you know, for our price conscious customers, we have a clearance corral and it's uh, it's got a little fence thing and a little rope around it and a cowboy hat hanging on it. And it's got a little sign hanging that says clearance corral, <laughs> you know, and you, got, and you keep moving certain items through there. That's good. You have it and it's in the back and that's where the discounting takes place, not up in the showroom. That's really good. By the way, lots of dealers have, have I know, instituted that in their stores back when I was uh, working in the, in the uh, Western United States. And uh, I'm sure to this day still use that. Yeah. So you brought up fear on the customer's end. And I think that it's important to also talk about fear on the salesperson's end. So if you're a salesperson, you muster up the courage to ask the customer if they want to buy and they tell you, oh, it's too expensive or no, I mean, I, I found it. I found it cheaper down the street, or well, I found a better model elsewhere. It takes guts to be able to step back up to the plate and address those objections head on. Can you talk about the fear that salespeople feel and how the Ted Williams rule can be applied to that? Well, first of all, to understand that we're in a uh, a profession that we've chosen where we're going to fail more often than we succeed. That's built in to sales. The, P, the salesperson that tells you that they close 100% of the sales that they are engaged in is lying to you. Or they're being very selective in what they consider a prospect. Yeah, or they're not quoting enough. Well, uh, I, I think they're just, they're just assuming, well, that person didn't ever really want to buy it. Anyway, but if you keep track and you can close three or it depends on, there's a lot of uh, variables here, but if you could, if you can close three to four sales out of 10, you're going to be making a lot of money in sales. Maybe not at the local place yeah. where you're working now, but believe me, if you can hit that kind of batting average, uh, you're going to do great. And if you can work it up to 50% of the time, you know, I think you can write your own ticket. Oh yeah. So let, let me just say, we use the example of, Ted Williams, because he was the all-time batting champ uh, in Major League Baseball. And uh, I think he batted, you'll have to refresh my memory, it was like 318 lifetime, something like that. He's like, I think it's like 340. 340. And uh, whatever it was, it indicates, right, 340 really means uh, 34% of the time he would get a, a hit. And that means 66% of the time he failed. And you have to look at it as how much courage would it take a person like Ted Williams to fail on that monumental level, on that biggest stage with that many people looking, to keep going up and get those three, three and a half hits out of 10, 10 opportunities and become the number one hitter, the most celebrated batter in Major League Baseball. I mean, it's just amazing. And yet you, as a salesperson, you get to embrace and face the exact same challenge. And believe me, they'll be celebrating you if you're hitting 340 or 400. So what do you do about the fear? So we, we have to realize sales is a game of math. And I mean, I, I think it's a win. Like when customers don't buy, it means we can check them off the list and move on to prospects that are more serious and that want to do business with you. How do you get over the fear to step up to the plate and actually address objections and, and to deal with the rejection that comes with sales. Be willing to be humiliated. And I say that sort of with tongue in cheek, but it's, if you, you can't run away from fear, you can't avoid fear. 
that is not a strategy that works. Okay, so here's what I recommend. You and I have a strength right now. We, we have something that we do well, something that we could learn to rely on if we ever actually acknowledge to ourselves that we do this well. Let's say you could make people smile. Or let's say you can put people at ease. That's it. That's your talent, your superpower. Or let's say that you know everything there is to know. Your superpower is everything there is to know about hearth products and how to how to install them safely. I mean, you any of these things can be your superpower. And if you will rely on that primarily, you're going to develop confidence. Okay, because you're building on a strength. Now, what we tend to do, and our managers often are guilty of kind of uh, exacerbating the situation is we look at all the things we can't do well, things yeah. where we can, and they will bring up uh, maybe trying to be helpful for us, trying to point out where we could improve. And pretty soon you're focused on all of your weaknesses and not on your strengths. And it is a very, very challenging uh, situation for a salesperson at that point to feel confident when you're focused on every way in which you're not doing it good enough, right? So there are ways you can improve, and we'll be working on some of those things. But right now, this is what you do well. And I remember uh, there was a young lady working at a retail store that I was in one time, and she was having a lot of, a lot of trouble, and she'd never closed any sales. She'd been working for about a month and, and still was just trying to read all the brochures and learn them. And I, uh, I suggested that she just show people how – how strong the hinges on the door were. I think I was selling Regency at the time. Yeah. Just open the door and sit on it and just show them that. And lo and behold, she sold her first stove by sitting on the door, you know, having a little bit of fun. And salespeople are allowed to have a little bit of fun, don't you think? So that's it. And I would say try to base your presentation on your particular strengths and see if you can't have a little bit of fun. I love it. That That is so good. I, I think that the fun aspect has to play in. And, you know, it, it just goes back to the fact that in sales, you have to make people comfortable. If, if, if they're not comfortable and you're not comfortable, it's going to be a really bad experience. And so much of sales is about confidence. And I think that we we think about all the what ifs. And, and the truth is that the reason that you've got managers, supervisors, installers, field technicians is if there's a mistake, like we're going to figure it out. But if the customer doesn't believe that you actually have the solution to their problem, like they're not going to do business with you. And it's StoryBrand says it's the combination of empathy and authority that wins. There's got to be a combination of empathy where I can say, hey, I know what it's like to be in this situation. And then there's authority. But that's why we've been helping you know, people for the last 30 years do the exact same thing. And I've actually got a testimonial of someone that was in your same situation. We can help you too. Perfect. Now, you know, we, we talked on our last time together when we were talking about Tom Pugh, talked about uh, when he and I were working together, we were selling the town and country fireplaces. It was a brand new concept at the time. And those were real expensive fireplaces. They were the most expensive fireplaces uh, being sold, I believe. I, I could be wrong, but I, I think that's probably the case. And uh, they also were the least efficient, but they had a big, beautiful flame. 
what we found out after a year or two uh, in the marketplace was that old hearth pros like you or me were not that good at selling them because we're so used to selling efficiency and heat. And this thing was just went against every belief that we had formed to become good salespeople. Who was selling the most town and countries in, in fireplace stores were the least experienced, newest employees. Do you believe that? I believe it. I mean, Absolutely. The most expensive, yeah, they just simply asked, you know, I showed them how beautiful it was. They didn't want to buy it. They had no other field of reference where they were thinking, this can't sell. And I think we just shortchange ourselves when we look at all the negatives. I've had sales meetings with distribution sales reps where I sat and actually listened to a salesman complain about the competitive nature of the product not being up to snuff and other people's products would be better. And that's why they couldn't sell it. I make a little joke, but I mean, I say, look, I get you. I hear you loud and clear. The product won't sell as easily as brand X does. So let me do this. I go back to the factory two or three times a year. When I'm back at the factory, I have a sit down and I know him well. He's a good guy. I'll talk to the president of the company. And let me explain to him that his products won't aren't to start sellable when they're compared to brand X. And I'll tell you what, if I'm still employed by him after I've explained that to him, I'm going to come back to you and give you his answer, okay? <laughs> yeah, in other words, buddy, if you can't get over this and figure it out, I'm not asking you to buy it. I'm asking you to sell it. And if you can't get over your own biases and negativity around a certain product, then we can't use you. We'll have to find someone else who can actually sell it. I love that you hit biases and negativity because that exists. And we have to be so wise with that. You know, our job is to be a professional. And that does mean that when it comes to safety issues and, and, and things like that, we do have to be able to be watchdogs for our customers. But there are plenty of situations where customers have different tastes than us. They have a different house than us. They have a different pocketbook than us. And where maybe you or I would say, well, I don't know if I'd be willing to spend this much money on something. For a lot of customers, I mean, it, they don't even care. It, you know, they, they spend three times as much on, you know, going on their family vacation every single year. It, we just, we can't put those biases in front of our customer, we have to let them do what they want to do as long as it's safe, and we can ethically say that, yeah, we, you know, this is a good fit for you. Absolutely, uh, you know, it's so important that as I went through my uh, career and was finishing up, uh, you know, I started distilling down what I wanted to talk to people about, and they were primarily what made you a good salesperson would be your ability to establish trust with a consumer, right? and to feel some sense of confidence. And that was partly what I also talked to their managers about was, remember your main job in getting your salespeople to be effective and productive is to get them up as quickly as possible to a state of confidence. And that does not happen by criticizing all of the- Yes, way. yes, yes. It doesn't mean you're, you're blowing smoke. It just means that you're pointing out where they're strong. And you're and you're you're applauding that, you know, you're celebrating their strengths. It may not be your strength, and they may never develop your strength, but they'll be much better off if you'll focus on what they do well rather than focus on what they don't do well. And then when it comes to developing trust, a very because this ties into what you were just talking about. 
You know, I looked up the definition in the dictionary and trust is simply the reasonable expectation of a positive outcome. A person has a reasonable expectation of a positive outcome. Well, it turns out that when you have biases that you sort of substitute for the consumer, because you, you, you figure you've done this now for a couple of years, or 10 years, and you know how they think, and you substitute your experience and knowledge for what you presume to be their thoughts, it's hard to get this because you're probably convincing yourself that that's effective. I'm telling you, if someone substitutes their thoughts for mine without my permission, and I don't, I have not established any trust at this point in time, that's an assault to me. It's like something I would resist with every inch of me. Yeah. So don't make that mistake of just assuming that you know what's in their head. You don't know what's in their head. I mean, there's no way. No one knows what's in their head. So don't sell that way by just sort of explaining to them what they need to know in order to make the right decision based on what you think, right? Exactly what you said. To, to another person spending, oh, gee, what, what's a big expenditure these days in a hard store? Like 50,000, somebody might spend that much. 50,000 to somebody, is the equivalent of about 5,000 to you or me, or maybe the equivalent of yep. 500 to you or me. You have no, no way of knowing it. Just because they wore jeans in and a T-shirt, it doesn't mean they're not like multi-millionaires and that this isn't an important addition into the new. And, you know, you just don't know any of that stuff. So don't substitute your, your experience or your bias. That's really good. And I've heard you talk about this before, about not selling with your own wallet. And I think it's so important as we start to round this conversation out. There's a friend of mine who is very well off and he drives a nice car. And he went in one time to get a new car and he, and he, and he was buying one and he wanted to get a maintenance package with it. And he wanted to get a maintenance package where they would come to his house, drop off a loaner car, pick up this car, take it to the shop, get the work done, and then drop it back off at his house. And the salesperson was a young guy that kept telling him, oh, but we have models that are less expensive. And, we, you know, we, what we can do is instead of you getting this, you could get a service package where you come in and I can save you this much money. And it got to the point where, where my friend just said, look, um, I, I need you. To, it's more convenient for me to pay the money and have you come to my house than for me to waste my time driving to the service center. Can you please, you know, either sell me the one that I want or find somebody else that can? Because we just, we can't, we don't know our customer's path, like you're saying, right? I mean, if you're wealthy and your time is more important to you than money, like there are things that you will pay for and be happy to pay for that, that other people won't. Absolutely. Uh, you remind me of, I mean, this is just a quick story. The, uh, two cars ago when I bought my wife a car, it was up in the Seattle area. And uh, I know we went in, we had already seen, we just had to get the right color. She wanted a certain van. Thing that uh, and told them, okay. I told the salesperson, we just want to get it. I'm going to write you a check. There's not going to be any financing. Just want to get it and go. The salesperson forced us to, first of all, sit through a presentation of all the things about the car, and, and literally, it took oh, 45 minutes to an hour for them to go through this stuff with us. <laughs> the funny part was 
it was an agreed upon price. I think I used the Costco buying service and it was just a set price on the car, right? So I, whatever, it was fine to me even if, I, even if I paid too much, but whatever the price was. And the salesperson, once they got through with the presentation, once they allowed us to buy the car, they said, and they wrote down on a piece of paper, the number, which was the Costco price on the car, and turned it around to face me like a big dramatic thing and said, so this price is acceptable to you? Now, what's the answer to that question? <laughs> wow. I said, well, uh, no. And she looked a little shocked and went, uh, well, what would be acceptable? And I went, well, I don't know, about $1,000 less than that. <laughs> actually went up to the quote manager, whoever, and came back and gave me $500. And I thought we could have kept playing that for another hour, but we wouldn't yeah. have. So she just, at the, as a last cherry on top, decided to throw me $500 more for no reason whatsoever. You know, and I thought, wow. Anyway. Yeah, that, oh, it's, it's, it's tough. And, and I just want to write a check and get out. That's it. Yeah, I think so much of it is is reading your customers, understanding who they are, having empathy for their situation, and, and helping them solve the problem. Uh, I want to run. I want to run this by you. So one of the things that I'm a huge fan of is creating a plan for every customer. So in most retail stores that perform their own installation, I recommend a three step plan, and I recommend that the plan is step one: you help the customer find the fireplace and you provide them an estimate for it. Step two, you come out to their house to look at things firsthand and make sure everything's going to be safe. And step three, you get the product installed for them. And that every time a customer comes in, you always talk about, hey, you know, Bill, thanks for coming in. You know, we got some great fireplaces to show you. What we hope to do today is I want to show you the options that could work and we'll actually write you up an estimate so you know what it's going to cost. After that, we'll come out to your house to take a look at everything and answer any safety questions you have. And finally, we'll get that installed for you safely and on time. And, and we run that play over and over and over and over. And it is so simple, but that clarity, I think it helps customers stay focused and it gives you something to close to. I mean, if you want to take money in the showroom, perfect, ask for the sale. If the customer says no, ask for the estimate. Like, it's okay to not ask, like, selling does not always mean taking money, but we're moving down the path, right? So so you, you ask to write the estimate. Okay, hey, Bill, this is going to be... $5,500 for this gas insert package. Is there a good day next week for us to come out to your house? I mean, I feel like if a customer is willing to look at a $5,500 price tag and then invite me into the house, there's a pretty good chance they're going to do business with me. Now, if you can get money or a deposit before that, that's great. But so many salespeople give up when they don't get money. When when I think, I think thinking about it in a plan, our goal is to win the long game. Like, we just want to advance the plan. We've got to step two. Now we go to step three. And I, what do you think about that idea? Well, I think you're uh, you're doing exactly right. You're a closer, and I want every salesperson to understand that that's not pushy. That's closing. Think of what it is you're doing. Close on something, and whether that something is the contract and and uh, the 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 transaction, the sale that takes place or if it's you're closing on a home visit, uh, there's probably other, a lot of things you can close on. Uh, what this brings to mind for me is I work with a lot of professionals who own 
let's say, manufacturing companies over the years, or national sales managers, or really, really experienced salespeople. And they'll be giving presentations for a distributor or for a general audience or whatever. And we'll just give the presentation and that's it. And I will, will inevitably say at the end of it, love the presentation. What did we close on? Close? What do you mean? I was just giving a presentation. I'm going, well, kind of a waste of time, isn't it? Do, we don't want to close on some kind of follow-up of something, anything. We don't want any commitment from a customer. You know, and it's funny. These are pros, and they just never thought of it that way. Never thought, you know, will I be able to see them in their showroom and talk about it or anything? I don't care, but close on something. So that's 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 it. That's my message. I don't want you to be pushy. I don't want to be pushy, but I want you to find easy, simple, and very inoffensive ways of asking people for a commitment to something, to the next thing. And that's what you just presented to me. Well, it's so good. I mean, I, I know that we're running long and I want to respect your time. Oh, I got it. Look at that. I love it. You know that this gets me more excited than anything else. And I, I, that's, I'm sorry to say that, but people who've ridden with me over the last 20 years have heard this me go off and then lose my train of thought. There'll be so much information that uh, starts rattling around in my head. It, it's just one of the most fun topics because it's not just about retail. And you realize once you've done it, in retail and you learn that yeah. and you does some wholesale, let's say, you realize it's a life skill. This is the way you interact. Oh my gosh. Yes. So there are people that have attended my seminars and they'll be asking questions and stuff like that. And there'll be somebody else who's got a whole different sort of mindset in the back who says, you know, he's not really talking to you about selling stuff, talking about your life, you know, and how you live your life and stuff. So anyway, to be more effective in your life. And, and ultimately, that's what, that's, that's what sales training is for all of us. It's kind of a path. It's almost like a, pardon the expression, I know I'll get, I'll get criticized for this. It's kind of like a spiritual path. It is. It's a path to enlightenment. Just, just, just take it day by day. Just take it step by step and watch what happens when you change your attitude toward a consumer, how that changes your attitude toward yourself. Uh, and and what difference that makes in your relationships and things like that. Anyway, it's it's just a wonderful profession. And I wanted to tell you one more story. I'm sorry. Yeah. Because uh, when I started thinking about uh, doing the podcast with you, I, I went back to when I first got hired out of grad school by Exxon Company. And I had really, you know, I had been up to that point. I had I had worked in a, on a farm hoeing weeds in a field of beans and beets in California one summer, and I decided that was terrible, so I became a disc jockey at the local radio station. I did that for a few years, and uh, I didn't really have any business experience, even though I had an MBA now, and I was going to work for Exxon. I'm up on the, like the, I don't know, 25th floor or something in Century City, and there are lots of people there talking. It's a staff position to start with before I got into the actual marketing of whatever they were selling gas and tires and things. I, I, I looked at all of us talking and criticizing and keeping track of all the transactions that were happening in the field. And we're so happy to be divorced from it. We were so abstract from the actual transaction taking place, that it was real safe 
and to, to do studies and things like that. And it was like a moth to a flame for me. There was something about that that was so intriguing that all the rest of us were just sort of like side people to the actual transactions. And we were really pretty much unnecessary. But that person, whoever was doing that, they were necessary. And, you, and I, I just remember thinking like, that terrified me and intrigued me at the same time. I just wanted to be, I didn't want to go through life and not have an idea of what that was all about. And so that's, that's what attracted me to it to begin with. And, that, and believe me, I failed more as much as anybody in sales. The easiest job in the world to fail at as far as I'm concerned. And in fact, it's almost required you have to fail at this job. Yeah, it is. But, I, but uh, that, that was what uh, got me all intrigued by it. That's why I still get all excited when we start talking about the nuts and bolts of what's actually taking place. So thank you for this opportunity. Yeah, Bill, it's my pleasure. I think about what it does for your life skills, like you mentioned. I mean, it, it is a journey of enlightenment. It really is. You know, I, I think that, that, that one of the keys of our life is to discover the true self and to throw off the false self. And I'll tell you, man, getting knocked down in sales starts to make you realize who you are. And, and there's a turning point. You know, I mean, failure is a, a bummer no matter what, but, but there's a turning point where you do start to shake it off, where you've been beat up enough, you're not afraid of it. You know, Kobe Bryant talked about how he, when he was a little kid, he, he used to be scared, and there was one day he got punched in the mouth, and he said, you know what, it didn't hurt as bad as I thought it did. And after that, I was never afraid to get punched in the mouth again. And that is so powerful. I think about it in my own life. You know, I mean, even like when I do this podcast, sometimes like guests are nervous and people are like, I just can't believe that you speak, you know, in front of people. And aren't you worried about saying, uh, or the wrong thing or, and, and uh, whatever. And, and for me, my background is I, I played guitar in a failing punk rock band for, you know, 10 years up and down the West coast. And for better or for worse, that taught me a skill set of not being afraid anymore to put myself and my ideas out in front of people. And, 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 and that's opened up opportunities for me that, that I never could have had otherwise, where so many people live in fear of putting their ideas out there. doesn't mean all my ideas are good, but the fact that that fear is mostly gone has, has tremendously helped me. And, and same thing in sales is, as you start to realize what communication is and how people like to be talked to and how to make ideas come across, as you get rejected more and more, eventually you start to lose the fear of it to where now you can actually think about helping people. And, and, and if you actually make the shift to, to forget fear and invest in helping people, I, I just think it makes you more effective in life. Here, here. I mean, that's the, uh, you know, there's a little thing I had written God, 25 years ago or something. One of the things Tom, I found in his desk when I, when I uh, ended up going to work for Tom, and was in his office one time, and he had all these old little things I had put together. And one of them was called, and I, I made a copy of it today because I found it on a computer, Ethics of Selling. And the, the last, I won't go through all of There's five little things I listed as ethics, but the fifth one is to mean no harm to anyone, you know, to be of service. A transaction is successful when all parties involved win. Win-lose transactions undermine trust, create resentment, and set up an atmosphere of fear and hiding and misrepresentation. It's up to you to ensure that all of your transactions are win-win. 
That's just a personal choice you end up making. And that keeps you from going to jail doing this stuff. Because you can go to jail as easily as you can be celebrated for winning the sales contest. Yeah, you're right. Well, I want to put you on the spot and ask you something. So this conversation has been tremendously valuable. And I'm going to post the Art of Sales online for anybody in our audience to download and read because it's just tremendous. But you actually sent me just a little bit earlier today an unpublished article of yours called The Heart of Sales. And I want to ask, can we can we publish that online so that people can can understand not just the art of sales but the heart of sales as well? Absolutely. No, I, yeah, I uh, I had written that, and uh, this came up in our discussion of Tom that uh, the balance in his life was something that was uh, hard for him to manage between work and other parts of his life. So everything else sort of suffered, although he was a wonderful man. I just I don't mean to say that. But sales really tipped the scale. And when I wrote this article, I think I had him in mind. He was still alive at the time and he read it and it just didn't make, I don't think it made much sense to him. Yeah. <laughs> so I mean, there was no energy uh, behind it, but uh, several of your listeners, uh, this one, yeah. like Roswald and uh, the uh, the newbies, okay, they, they got copies of it, read it. Uh, and gave me good feedback on it, but uh, never we never sent that into uh, Hearth and Hope. Well, I like it. I, I... Anyway, yes, well, you have all, my total permission. Anything that I've ever published is not copyrighted. It's for anyone, that, uh, and I'm happy to share. Well, we're going to publish that because I think that people need to hear this message. So, you know, Bill, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and I just can't thank you enough for the gift that you've given the industry about what sales is actually all about. You're empowering us to serve people and make money and provide generously for those around us. And ultimately, that's what business is for. So thank you, man. I appreciate you being here today. Thank you, Tim. It's been a pleasure. Well, I hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Bill Lentz. Holy cow. I mean, as I listen back to it, my mind is blown. To be able to speak to someone like that that is a master of their craft and just listen to them riff and riff and riff is just, it's amazing. I know for me, I, I took away a ton. And this is something that we can always be learning more about. You know, sales gets a bad rap. I do consulting with a lot of businesses. And sometimes when I talk to their team members, their team members don't like to think of themselves as salespeople. But the truth is, I mean, you heard it in this conversation, like, Life is sales. I mean, this is a conversation about life. I look at sales as being able to be a teacher, you know, being able to help somebody make the right decision. That decision doesn't always mean buying from me, but I want to help them make the right decision. And in order to do that, I've got to be effective with my communication. I need to understand the natural fears and tendencies that are in place and help people work through those. And when needed, be assertive to be the guide to say, hey, we don't need to be afraid of this. Do you want to take action or not? I think the conversations like this are so valuable, and I hope that you guys got as much out of it as I did. Now, as promised, I've got the articles that we talked about posted online. So if you want to download the article series, The Art of Sales, and that last article that we referenced, The Heart of Sales, which to this date has never been published, you can go to itsfiretime.com slash art of sales. There's going to be download links right there. It's firetime.com slash art of sales. 
Well, I appreciate you guys listening through this entire episode, and I can't wait for what the rest of this season has for you. If this podcast has been a blessing for you and you'd like to support it financially, you can go to the website, patreon.com slash it's fire time. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash it's fire time. And your contributions every month help us outsource the administrative duties of this podcast so that we can keep the level of content as high as possible. So with all of that said, I'm so excited to be back for this season. I can't wait for what's in store. And I hope that you guys have an amazing week serving the people that are all around you. Thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast. To learn more, visit the website itsfiretime.com. Music from this episode was written and recorded by In Bloom out of Portland, Oregon. We thank you for listening to the Firetime Podcast, where it's never hot enough, slow is fast, and the way to win is to make it so stupidly easy to buy from you that there's no excuse not to. We'll see you next time.